This is Jessica McGilka, and welcome to The Fly-Through, where we talk about all things commercial and corporate real estate. Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Fly-Through. This is Jessica McGilka, your host. As always, you can find me on LinkedIn. Shoot me a note. I love to hear from people. And also, if you like the podcast, consider leaving us a quick review. It's super helpful. Today on the uh, podcast, we went macroeconomics. We interviewed Ryan Severino, who is JLL's chief economist, and he joined me to discuss where his crystal ball is telling him the economy is going, when is that going to happen, and ultimately why we're all here, what does that mean for the real estate market and decision-making inside of companies. Luckily, his crystal ball is, um, unlike mine, made of piles of math and models and data, and he uses all of that to predict when he thinks the economy is going to start building and growing again. And I'm here to tell you guys, you got to listen. It's good news, folks. Ryan believes we're entering a six-month time of risk and continued uncertainty, but that after this kind of next chunk of time, this six to eight, maybe nine months, we are, we're in for it. We're going for a ride with the economy. It's going to grow. It's going to run hot for the middle of this decade. And what does that mean for everybody? It means opportunity is screaming right now. So join me and Ryan Severino. Welcome to the fly through Ryan. We're thrilled to have you to talk about all of the good news that you see coming down the pipe. Ryan Severino, Chief Economist of JLL, welcome to the fly through. Thanks, Jessica. Thanks for having me. Yeah, this is super fun. We've I've uh, actually heard you speak a couple times now, and when I when I heard you speak the first time, I knew I had to have you on the podcast. Because I thought you were going to say you were really bored. <laughs> no, I wasn't really bored. I actually have a whole page, couple pages of notes when I went in to prepare for this. I realized that I already had a whole bunch of notes and questions and things I wanted to ask to, to talk about, um, on the podcast. And, um, so why don't you introduce yourself, Ryan, who are you? How did you get to where you are? What do you do for JLL? What does it mean to be a chief economist? Uh, so I got into commercial real estate accidentally. Uh, it wasn't something that I planned to do. I just kind of fell into it. Uh, I was working in a fixed income group and got exposure to CMBS and ended up liking it. But uh, I wanted to be a little more closely connected to the actual properties themselves. Started working on the private side for uh, a big institutional investment manager, and I did that for uh, about about uh, two and a half years. But I, I've always been, and I, I say this lovingly, a nerdy academic person. I wanted to get more toward the research side of things. And so I went back to graduate school, and I studied more math and finance and economics than I even did as an undergrad. And uh, I've been off and running since then. I went back to work uh, in research capacity for big institutional firms. I worked for about seven, seven and a half years at a specialty data and econometric shop. And, uh, and I've been at JLL for uh, about four and a half years. And, and the way that I see my job is really looking at the big picture. What's going on with the economy? What's going on with demographics? What's going on geopolitically in the world? And then translating that into implications for 
commercial real estate, different property types, different markets, but on a very discrete basis, very, very you know, rigorously mathematical, um, you know, writing programs to figure this out, not just sticking my finger in the air and, and saying, oh, I think rents are going to go up because of this, really trying to quantify the impact of that stuff as best I can. And so it's a really good fit for me because it's a really great intersection of things that I like. I obviously like commercial real estate. I wouldn't be doing this as long as I have if I didn't. Uh, I really love economics. Uh, I like coding, writing programs. I love mathematics. Um, and I'm one of the people who likes those sorts of things that uh, is a massive extrovert. And so it's great that I work in commercial real estate since this is a people and relationship business. And so I see my job as, as being at the intersection of all of those things, have to be able to communicate, have to be able to talk to people, have to understand real estate and economics and programming and mathematics. Um, but most importantly, I have to be a good storyteller. I have to take that stuff and produce a narrative that people who are not um, so into math and coding the way I am um, can understand it. Yeah. So I think that's a really important I think that's an important point. You're not just going on Forbes.com and reading a whole bunch of stuff out there. You're actually taking fundamental numbers that you're getting through the that that the economy and the department of fill in the blank is putting out, and you're creating, I guess, programs and models that will then that then spit out where you think the economy is going. Or where your numbers think the economy is going. It's not even you. It's it's your program says this, and you're you're the one that's building that model, and then it's spitting out what's going to happen. Right, and that's what I said to someone uh, the other day. I said what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to utilize data with the best methodologies that I know that I've been taught and have been utilizing over the years to produce unbiased projections of the future for both the overall economy and the commercial real estate market. And I say unbiased because I'm not, I'm not imbuing my own opinions into it. The, the data is the data. And, and yes, I have some control over the way the programs are written and, and the mathematical logic in there, but it's still driven by the data. So it's not in the sense that um, I fall in love with a deal because I've worked on it for six months, or I've fallen in love with a market or a submarket because I lived there once upon a time. I mean, I have properties that I've worked on in the past that I like and places that I, I lived in the past that I that I like more than others. But if I'm trying to give a client, uh, you know, or someone important, even internally, an assessment of where I think things are going, I try to be agnostic about my opinions and just adhere to what the data and, and the forecasts say. And that way, I can't guarantee you that it's going to be right because I don't think anybody has a perfect crystal ball, but I can promise you that at least the results are going to be unbiased, that it's not my view or someone else's view. There, there is a place for that in the process, but just as a starting point, I don't want that filtering in. I just want the data. I just want to run it through the model, spit out a result, and then let people opine on what they think about it and then you know, overlay their mm -hmm. opinions on top of that. Because otherwise, it's hard to have an objective view on things if it's just laden with everyone's you know, sometimes competing opinions. So is is and this is a little it's not totally off topic for people that don't know JLL has you know 100,000 plus employees around the world. We're a pretty big company. Um, so do you have like a special bat phone that our CEO Christian like calls you and is like, okay, Ryan, and he's German. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna fake German accent right now. Um, but so does he call you and say like, do, do you feed into that larger JLL strategic plan? Because as 
And we, I think we'll get into real estate as a lagging indicator, but if you can tell somebody how you think the economy is going, then our business is big enough at, at JLL that it is significantly impacted by how the economy is doing. So do you get, are you feeding into that level of decision-making at both JLL and at our clients companies? Is that how you kind of fit into the big picture? Certainly at JLL. So it's not like I have the bat phone that you know, Christian calls <laughs> me on or anything, but you know, senior management does reach out. They will ask for my view on, um, you know, obviously the economy, but even I think, you know, my, my view on how I think it's going to impact um, our business internally in terms of, um, you know, what it could do for revenues and, and those kinds of considerations. And so I do get involved in, um, in projects from time to time that, that either senior management will ask about, I've worked on stuff for the board of directors that they've asked about. So definitely at the, you know, I don't want to overstate, you know, yeah. my importance or anything, but I, do get asked to, to work on projects um, for those levels from, okay. from time to time. On the client side, you know, it, it tends to evolve more, involve predominantly their, their businesses. I, I don't want to say it doesn't, you know, looking at a deal to lease a space or to sell a property, I, it potentially could impact their decisions up to the level of them running their business. But I would say more times than not, they're left to their own devices to interpret yeah. that as opposed to me saying, I think this is the explicit implication of that. I will do that for JLL from time to time when they ask about that. I will mm -hmm. say, I explicitly think this is going to do this to revenues or this to you know, this part of the world that we're trying to grow the business in or something like that. Uh, but I don't often encounter that as much. At least I don't get explicitly asked that by clients. Yeah. They're mostly interested in my views on the economy and the markets. And I leave them to, to use yeah. that information as they will. But I feel like that's something that's really important for a lot of clients and companies with real estate and specifically it's, it's, I often think of it as the tail wagging the dog in some ways, like we can give you certain information, but your business has so many other facets. I am not running your business. I am supporting a piece of an important piece of your business, but that's how kind of, I always think about it. And so Okay, let's let's get into the nuts and bolts of the of where we think we are. Where Ryan, do you think we are in as an economy right now in the US? Where do you see how are you seeing things? It is just a time stamp it. We're at the very end of January um 2021. Where are we right now? I think we are give or take 6 months away from things really starting to improve. And I say that because I, this is a point that I've made repeatedly over the last year, that the pandemic is the recession, that we would not have gotten into a recession, at least not during the time period in which we did without this pandemic. And I emphasize that because it is going to take getting past the pandemic to fix, fully fix the economy. There was this, not among economists like myself, I can honestly say, but there was this group of people that thought for a time last year that the pandemic and the economy were effectively independent of each other, that we could somehow bring the economy back online without fixing the pandemic. And I have been repeatedly banging this drum and saying, no, that these things are not independent. They are closely related to each other. We need to fix the pandemic if we're going to fix the economy. So here's the good news. The good news is we have this six month interval where there is a lot of uncertainty right now for the trajectory of the pandemic, 
what's going to happen with vaccination in terms of producing vaccines, distributing vaccines, administering vaccines. But I would say most of the forecasts that I've looked at that I think are, are objective, really solid forecasts, generally peg reaching herd immunity by the middle of the year, June, July, maybe August, somewhere around that time frame. I don't see any reason why that shouldn't be the case right now based on the things that I'm seeing and what the experts uh, and the modelers in, in epidemiology and, and, and virology are saying. What's weird to me is that I'm in a position where I have, I have a lot of confidence about the, what I'll call the medium term. We get through the next six months. I think there's a lot of pent up demand from people like us who've been stuck at home, who wanna go out to dinners and out to go get a drink with friends and relatives and go on vacations and stay in hotels and go to theme parks and things like that. And we just really haven't been able to do the way that, that we have for most, if not the entirety of our lives. I think that will get a torrent of that demand will get unleashed. And I, and I think even on the other side of this, I think businesses and individuals will make different decisions at the margin about how they spend and invest money that I think will also help the economy, at least through the middle of this decade. That six month period where that uncertainty prevails is what I'm not as confident in. And I say it's weird because anyone like me who has to either build a crystal ball or try to peer into a crystal ball I would, I would objectively say feels less confident the farther into the future we go. Usually I feel more confident about the short term. And let, if you ask me what's going to happen in 2030, I would just say, man, if I knew what was going to happen in 2030, I definitely wouldn't need a job. And I'd be doing this <laughs> podcast interview for my huge estate in Hawaii and we'd party with celebrities after we were done. <laughs> that said, I, I think there's a fundamental principle that you know, the further away we get from you know, time zero in the finance vernacular, the more uncertain things become. It's weird for me to say, I feel pretty good about the medium term. It's just the six month period because I, I just don't think we exactly know exactly where the pandemic is going and what vaccination looks like. So we get through that six month period. I think the prospects for the economy medium term look, look really attractive. I just, I don't know about that six month period because we just don't have a lot of transparency on these non-economic factors right now. And quantify medium term for me. What is, how long, how far away is medium term? What is, how long is that? I think medium term over the next say two to five years. In my okay. mind, short term, it's funny because in, in economics, there's a very technical definition of the short run versus the long run. In my mind, the back of the envelope is, you know, short run is six months to a year. You know, the medium run is probably two to five years. In my mind, the long run, at least for me personally, is beyond five years. I really try not to forecast beyond five years because, like I said, if I knew it was going to happen five to 10 years down the road, um, you know, I, we'd be doing, like I said, I, yeah, you know, we'd be in Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, we'd probably be in Hawaii partying after this is over. So, <laughs> so I mean, and not to, to get off topic too much, but that's one of the huge shifts that I see in the next chunk of time here is that companies can't well they can't always or they it's hard for them also to forecast five years out and beyond and yet lease terms are not aligned with their ability to realistically forecast and flexibility I think in so many different facets of flexibility is going is something that is is coming at the real estate market. And that's, we can get into a little bit of that with this structural versus cyclical kind of changes, but I see that as a structural change that's gonna be coming down the pipe here anytime. Um, but that said, let's let's stick with, so we've got, so what do you 
What are you watching? What are you thinking about in the next six months that will influence how you see that medium term developing? Obviously, what happens with the pandemic and vaccination? I I don't want to dwell on that too much because yeah. you know my kids could tell you that, right? So you don't need me to sit here yes. and tell you that part of it. What I would say is one of the things that I'm I'm really paying attention to, which is not something that I it's not something I ignore, but it's something that maybe don't I don't pay acute attention to the way I do now is what I will call the non-office using segment of the labor market because one of the hallmarks of this downturn that's different and and you, I know you've heard me say this before, but uh, I'm very fond of of saying at this point in my career that the two most dangerous thoughts in economics are this time is different and that will never happen again, except that this time really is different for, for a lot of reasons when you're dealing with a pandemic. But one of the ways it was different was that we saw um, and outsized the disproportionate impact on that non-office using segment because of because of the things that we can't do that we would normally do during a downturn. We would normally still go to out to eat and we would still go get a drink at a bar and still go on vacations and get on airplanes and stay in hotels. Uh, it's been that, not surprisingly, it's been that part of the labor market that's been hit the hardest. We can recover without that immediately come roaring back. But if we are really going to get to, to any semblance of a full recovery in the economy, we are going to need to see those jobs coming back. The good news is, as long as there haven't been business failures, I think we can relatively easily turn those jobs back on. That is, people start going to bars and restaurants and staying in hotels. When the demand for that comes back, I can see there not being as, as much of um, a barrier to entry is again as long as as uh, you know businesses haven't haven't ceased to exist. I do think objectively it takes longer for that to come back because I think some people will be reticent for a while to stay in a hotel, get on an airplane, go out to eat, even even into the you know the you know the latter stages of this year into next year. But I think if we are talking about a full recovery in the economy, not just one that's concentrated in certain pockets or segments of the economy, then we're going to need that part of the labor market to make a, a significant comeback because the office using part of the, of the labor market has been impacted, but not to the same extent yeah. that the non-office using segment has. Can I clarify whether that non-office using segment includes manufacturing? Because one of the ways that we really see some folks never went home, right? So you've got manufacturing employees and healthcare employees that never that always had to be on site in service sector like janitorials and some of those do your non-office employees that you're just talking about is there a different category for manufacturing people like employees that have always been have stayed on site generally yes when we say office okay. using employment we we're trying to focus in on industries predominantly. So obviously okay. financial services is office using employment predominantly, business and professional services, technology these days. Then what we try to capture is in industries that you don't typically think of as being office using, like construction, clearly the percentage of employees that work in construction and work in office space consistently is greater than zero, but it's not the majority of okay. the workers. So we try to capture within each individual industry, what we think is the component of that, that clearly changes over time. It's not a fixed ratio, but that's how we think about it. We try to capture 
the percentage of the workers in individual industry categories that are likely to work in an office space. Okay. And then when you're talking about full, a full recovery of the economy, something that I've been keeping an eye on and have, um, and am frankly concerned about is the percentage of women in that are leaving the workforce. Yes. Can you speak to how the, how the sheer number I saw in McKinsey's survey that they just did, I think it was in September, 600,000 women left the workforce. Can you talk about women and women leaving the workforce and that how that will or could impact an economic recovery? Yeah, to me, like this is one of the the most serious, at least as far as the labor market's concerned, most serious and, and unfortunate casualties of this because you know, women have always been just because of the nature of things at a disadvantage when it comes to things like this. And it's unfortunate because they're the better educated gender, certainly in the United States these days. Um, they are the ones that are, are driving, I think, a lot of decision making, especially among households. We were getting to a point, we'd actually gotten to a point at the end of 19, the beginning of 20, where you were seeing um, more women in the workforce than men, actually, even on an absolute basis. What 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 I find disheartening about this is because of different factors, women tend to be the ones who take on more of um, you know the the family care role. Whether you're talking mm -hmm. about children or you're talking about um, you know older adults that that require the sandwich care. generation conversation. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. and so it's women who unfortunately bear bear the brunt of it when it comes to that. So with children being home, you know, doing digital schooling online, it's predominantly been women who have really um, who, ha as to your point, have, have had to step out of the labor force. And that that not only presents problems for them individually, but I think it presents problems for the economy at large. Because one of the things that I see when I look at the data is when you look at women out of the labor force, one of the things you see that I find the most disheartening about this is that a lot of these women are really well-educated. They have bachelor's degrees and graduate degrees. And, and, I, and I'm not trying to make it sound like I, I think you know, being at home is is something that's not valued or it's not important. I it's just expensive see... to replace those women once they leave. So the cost to the overall economy of just this sheer number is going to be a challenge. Yeah, it's and 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 in my mind, looking at it from an economics point of view, those are resources that that should be. I'm using should a little bit liberally, but should be put to work because they could be so productive and so beneficial to the economy. And again, I'm not, I'm not saying that you know, some of them are doing it voluntarily. So I don't, I don't yeah. want to make it sound like it's- We're talking macro here. We're but, going, we're going 20,000, 50,000 feet on this. But one. if I had to think of a way that we could juice the economy, you know, that's a technical economics expression, juice the <laughs> yeah. economy. If you could find a way for them to still be able to do the things that they they feel like they need or want to do at home, but still contribute in in you know in a, a private enterprise or or some other public capacity, that would be a real benefit to the economy. Because like I said, a lot of them are are bachelors and graduate degree holders. They clearly could be doing something incredibly productive. And again, this is this is the gender in the United States now that captures more of the of the higher education and and clearly is taking on a more prominent and rightfully is taking on a more prominent role in private enterprise uh, and in the public arena um that's one where i've i've i i i've talked about this i've written about this in the past when 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 i talk about a labor shortage in the united states in my mind 
I, I don't want to make it sound like it's the lowest hanging fruit that it's it's an easy problem, but in my mind, the lowest hanging fruit in a sense of we have we have some of the resources already in place would be to figure out how to unleash that supply, if you will, to make yeah. it easier for women and whatever form that takes, making um, work-life balance better, making work arrangements more flexible. If there's any good that comes out of this, hopefully one of the things is that things like working from home and flexibility and work-life balance is not just lip service any longer. Mm -hmm. It's a serious thing that companies think about. Hopefully that can make it more, more palatable, if you will, to a lot of, of women yeah. who felt like they needed to leave the labor force because, again, they, they are a very powerful resource that I think if we could find a way to tap into that, not only would it be better for, I think, for them, because I'm sure there's a pool of them that didn't want to leave the labor force, right. but I think it would be better for the economy at large. And, and, um, and that's one where I feel like for all of the issues that we have in the economy that feel like they're intractable, that's one where I think, boy, if we could just solve this one issue, that could unleash a lot of power into the economy that is sitting on the sidelines right now. Yeah. Let's talk about um, let's talk about uncertain uncertainty or a lack of clarity in what should I do? So I'm a tenant rep broker. A lot of companies that I work with are, and I'm hearing this across the country and from all sides of the of the of the um, the real estate kind of you know landlord side, tenant side, yada yada yada. Um, Lots of companies are kicking the can a year down the <clears throat> like a year down the road if they if they must do something on a lease property because like we were talking about real estate's a lagging indicator. It's a long-term commitment, it's expensive. And I think that the lack of clarity in the markets and what is going to happen is preventing a lot of decision making versus risk. So how do you as an economist think about? lack of clarity in a market versus risk as companies are going through specifically real estate decisions. That's, it, it's interesting, or maybe I'm using interesting a little liberally, but interesting in that, at least in economics, we think about uncertainty and risk differently. Uncertainty yeah. in economics is something we can't quantify. We, we know that something's going on or we know that something is going to occur or could occur, but we just don't have enough data and information to actually go out and quantify that. A risk is something that I can quantify. There's there, at least in an economic sense, mm -hmm. there's, you know, if I want to know, um, if I, what I think the risk in the stock market is, I can look at historical data, I can calculate, say, the standard deviation of the S&P 500 or something like that. The uncertainty that people are grappling with now that they're trying to quantify so that they can, they can convert it from uncertainty and risk around things like projections for the pandemic, projections for vaccination, projections for return to offices, those kinds of considerations where, if we're being honest about it, we are trying to add quantification to things that are very difficult to quantify, especially yeah. if you add in, and I say this as a, as a politically agnostic person, but once you start to add a political dimension to this, things like, is the government going to pass another stimulus plan? How involved are they going to get in vaccination, you know, rollout, distribution, administration? It's, it's, it's really hard to put numbers around those things. And so if you have to make any kind of projection that has to take those non-quantifiable or relatively difficult to quantify things into account, it's a problem. And I say this uh, as a person who's been grappling with that for the last year. I, you know, I never took a class on pandemic econometrics. And so, I, you know, to use a, a, a somewhat uh, overused expression, you know, sort of 
building the plane while we're flying it. I kind of had to figure this out as I went along, try something, look at whatever data we had, test some relationships, figure out if I thought it was meaningful or not, and then keep adapting as I went along. One of the best ways that I, I usually show this when I'm giving presentations, I show the consensus forecast for the economy, just all the people who contribute to that. And I not, I not only show, um, you know, where it sits over time, but I also showed the range from um, the most positive to the most negative. And one of the things that we saw immediately after the the crisis really set in was that range really widened out. And it wasn't like all of these economists, um, you know, got, you know, massively stupid, say, between March and April of last year, or their models um, all of a sudden just, you know, were, were nonsense. They just had to take into account things that just you don't normally have to take account of, and there was not a lot of data on that. And so the range went from really narrow to really wide because people like myself who had to who had to build these crystal balls are now sitting there scratching our heads going like, what, what, what happens with this? We didn't okay. know for a while. We had to make it up or invent it as we went along. So a complete lack of consensus. Do you think that we're getting to, a, like, so, so you're saying there's a lot of risk in the next six months. <clears throat> there's still a lot of uncertainty everywhere about how are you going to use, especially how util- real estate will be utilized in the future. But is there a consensus building around your, where you're, what you've been talking about, like the six month lack of clarity, the high risk turning into a, a better economy after that? Yeah. I almost think, um, I've had that view for a while. I feel like I'm in danger of becoming part of groupthink because I feel like a lot of people Everybody are starting now. to They're think like, that yeah, now. Yeah, and that always makes me worried when too many people are thinking the same thing. Um, but I, I, the reason that I say that is it, it, this, this, however long it is, it might not be exactly six months. I'm pegging it at that. It might be yeah. seven months, eight months. But we have reasonable transparency now on things like vaccinations and, and how long it's going to take, how many people are probably going to have natural immunity from having having overcome uh, the disease. But that said, there are still a lot of moving parts to this that we don't know exactly how they're going to play out. And that's why I think I, we're almost at a point where there's this seemingly seeming paradox between the pandemic never being worse than it is now, but us never being closer to the end of the pandemic than we are right now. And those those sound, like I said, it's a seeming paradox, but those are not contradictory things. Yes, objectively across a variety of metrics, the pandemic has never been worse than it is now, but because of the vaccination plan, I think we are objectively closer to the end of this than we've ever been. And it's that seeming paradox, I think that makes this uncertain. I don't know exactly how quickly they're going to be able to roll this out. I know they're ramping up the program, they're trying to make it more efficient. They're trying to get more people vaccinated on a week-to-week basis. But I also know that even though the numbers appear to have crested a little bit, we are still at very elevated levels. And that transmission in a lot of places is, is still at incredibly high levels. And so it's that tug of war, if you will, between the positives and negatives that makes the next six months uncertain. And you could see it going um, any number of ways. I, I feel confident in the relative time frame. I'm just unsure of the exact path that we take to get between, say, here and the middle of the year when we get past this. Okay, so I just want to make sure it's abundantly clear what you're saying is that six, eight, nine months, six, seven, eight, nine months, something like this, we've got a short-term, immediate, high-risk situation, and then we'll move into, hopefully, in your view, a 
more of a recovery? Are we already in recovery? Like what happens after this six to nine month period that you're of high risk? So I'd say I, for my money, at least technically, I think we're in recovery. The economy grew in the third and fourth quarters of last year, at least in my, my base case projection and my model, it doesn't have us backsliding again. And so there's, there clearly have been impediments to growth. It's slowed down between the third quarter and the fourth quarter. But I think if we avoid the most dire situation, I think we can skirt a secondary contraction in the economy. We can continue to grow through the first half of the year. But I do think once we get through that period, I do think there is really good prospect for unleashing this pent-up demand. And, and the thing about this is because of the way that this is going to, to occur, I think it's... I apologize, I'm gonna go a little nerdy for a second, but I think it's a non-linear phenomenon in the sense that we've been vaccinating people since you know mid-ish December. You haven't really seen appreciable benefits to that because it's such a small percentage of the population. But as that accumulates and as it builds, you will see it eventually hit a point where it's not just a steady linear increase, it really starts to ramp up. Not to make this about me, but just to give you a quick example, um, my my in-laws are are getting their first vaccinations next week. They'll get their second one. I think you know it's four weeks after that, the beginning of March. So we, I give them you know two or three weeks to, for it to to fully work and for the weather to warm up a little bit. And then my wife and I are looking at each other saying, "Hey, they can watch the kids. We can go out to dinner, you know, by ourselves. Even if we're sitting outside, because mm-hmm. if we're not vaccinated, I don't think we're going to be willing to do it indoors just yet." But Spring tends to be relatively nice around here. We could actually sit outside, you know, have dinner by ourselves, which we've only been able to do once over the last, you know, 11, 12 months or so. That's what I mean by nonlinear, that even the people who haven't been vaccinated might, and I think will be able to find ways to feel safer about going out and re-engaging the economy relative to right now. So you get more people vaccinated, it improves in a nonlinear fashion. Warmer weather comes back to the Northern Hemisphere when spring comes back. I think the combination of those things really starts to push the economy. We get to, you know, herd immunity, 70% threshold that most epidemiologists have it pegged at. And I think, you know, we start off and running for a while. Not I don't want to promise you, you know, politician caliber growth rates in the economy because only politicians promise those and they never come to fruition anyway. But I do think the economy has a good chance to run ahead of capacity for a while because I do think some spending that didn't occur last year gets reallocated to later years. And I do think people are going to reorient their thinking a little bit at the margin about about how they live their lives and about how they run organizations. And I think that provides the opportunity for the economy to run ahead of capacity for at least the next few years. And that's not something that I would have said, um, you know, just a year or two ago. I think we were, we were migrating down closer and closer to capacity and finding it harder to generate economic growth. If there's a, you know, another silver lining that comes out of this, I would say it's that maybe we do get a change in how people make decisions at the margin that boosts growth in a way that we wouldn't have normally gone. I'd rather not have gone through a pandemic to get to that change in thinking. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if we're groping for silver linings here, that's that's not the worst yeah. one I could think of. Okay, so let's translate this conversation into real estate markets. With the Let's start really, really high, like really macro, with the full caveat that there are, there are certain sectors that will... Diff, real estate is um, nuanced enough that it's not a macro conversation, but let's do it anyway. Let's, okay. let's, let's do office. <laughs> let's just keep it... Sorry, now, now I've changed my mind. It's like, because industrial has been really hot and on the move for a variety of reasons. 
big box and like home improvement, you know, targets, like those kinds of things have been going gangbusters. We all know what happened to the to restaurants and smaller retailers. Right. Let's talk about office because I think office is such an interesting such an interesting way to view an economic recovery. And, and I really want to make sure we talk quickly about the structural versus the cyclical change. And I think the office market is such a, such a great way to have that conversation. So, so give me the, how all of this economic stuff translates into the office and real estate markets, because as we were saying, it lags and how much does it lag and all of that kind of thing. You're you're absolutely right. It's it's a lagging indicator. It tends to, to right. I'm generalizing a little mm-hmm. bit because it does differ across markets, but it tends to lag 12 to 24 months somewhere in that somewhere in that time frame. And so there's still some. We still probably have this period in 2021 where, as you mentioned, people are delaying making decisions, and so it depresses demand, and so landlords eventually start giving on asking rents because they've given on all of the other components that impact the effective rents long enough that eventually they they start at least at you know on, on some basis start cutting the face level asking rents vacancies still rise through this time period i think that cycle still has to play out i think we probably reached the bottom of that in 2022 and that feels about right to me if the absolute nadir of the economy is in mid 2020 which is where it really seems to be 18 to 24 months hence from that is sometimes saying the first half of 22. So that that roughly feels about right to me. The question that you raised, the, the cyclical versus structural, is a really interesting one because a lot of people are having the structural conversation right now. Are people going back into an office? How many days per week? Um, you know, well, are let's, they going to- let's talk a little bit about what is a structural change to the office economy specifically. Let's go a little bit into this because I think this is the key in my mind for how companies need to be thinking about it, how they, they need to be thinking about real estate and why this next year is a really key year for action if you can do it. So Describe, like define a structural change in the economy. So when I think of a structural change, I think of something that permanently changes the way the economy works. Something about the structure, the structural, but something about the structure of the economy itself has fundamentally changed relative to the way things used to be. E-commerce is a structural change, right? It fundamentally changed the way that we think about shopping relative to like what it was like when I was a kid when you know we would go to the mall because that was the best option to buy a whole bunch of different stuff in one place because there was no internet for most intents and purposes um, you know back when I was younger. That is different from something that's cyclical which tends to ebb and flow with the overall business cycle. Even if it's not perfectly synchronized with the overall business cycle, it's just something that goes through patterns of ups and downs repeatedly over time. So if I'm thinking about something structural, I'm thinking about something that's changed in the way that the structure of the economy operates versus something cyclical, which is just, it's it's changing, but it's only changing because the economy is moving through a different phase, not because something is permanently changing. So structural to me is, and when when we're talking specifically about office, the densification of office that happened over the last bunch of years, right? The sheer number of people that you try and put into a physical space and what is reasonable in that felt very structural to me over the last bunch of years. And 
but yet that structure is shifting again. And the latest and most important conversation, I think right now around a structural change that is totally lacking in clarity is how are people going to come back to the office and the work from home and the remote and the flexible work and how will that actually impact the structure of how people get offices and utilize their built environment? You're right. And I, I think of it the same way. I think of that densification as a structural change. When I say permanent, I don't mean like in the year 3,500, yeah. our offices will still be the same. I just mean it's it's not a function of the ups and downs of the business cycle. So I agree with you. The densification that has occurred over the last 20, 25 years, that was a structural change. It was it was a long enough period of time that it was, it was more than than multiple business cycles. And so I think this de-densification that, that we very well could go through could be that as well, because I now think you're going to have people, the conversation is different. Whereas once upon a time, people might've not liked densification because they said, well, I'm senior vice dictator of accounting. Like this office space is not congruous with my importance to the universe kind of thing. Whereas now people are thinking about it like, well, yeah, that, but maybe it's not safe for me to be, you know, really crammed in at a cafeteria style table mm-hmm. with people, you know, arm's length away when, when, you know, we might have, who knows, like if this is the last novel, you know, virus that we're going to have to contend yeah. with at some point. And so I, I think when people, when we start to have the conversation about going back to the office, you're not going to be surprised to hear this. I look at it from an economist's point of view. People want to go back to an office. They want to get things out of it that they cannot get sitting at home, uh, you know, at their kitchen table or in their study or whatever the case happens to be. So if that's going to be the case, then we need to start to think intelligently about providing that kind of offering to them that they're demanding, right? Supply and demand. So I'm almost starting to think about it as, and, and, and I'm going to borrow an expression, but almost like office as a service. What service are you providing to people to get them back into an office? Because now we know working from home can be relatively more competitive, that you could put on a work shirt and bunny slippers and nobody will be the wiser. So you can get away with that. So people want to go back into an office, but you need to provide them with the things that they want to get out of that. And I'm not saying that everything needs to turn into a de facto lounge or cafeteria uh, or cafe necessarily, but you have to give them something that they can't yeah. get at home. So if they want to come in and they want, want to have more privacy than they've had, then the individual spaces need to be somewhat more private than we've migrated to with this densification. If they want to collaborate and have conversations, because you can't sit at a cafeteria style table and have that because otherwise not everybody would be sitting there with noise canceling headphones or earbuds in. So you have to provide them with the kinds of spaces mm-hmm. that are conducive to that. And so we are going to have to to think about what the office space of the future looks like yeah. on the other side of this. And I'm not an architect and I don't want to make it sound like I'm, you know, I'm doing a lot of build outs. I'm just looking at this as an economist and saying people are clearly demanding and want to go back into an office, but they want to go back for specific reasons. I think employers and landlords should listen to those reasons and then craft the office space around that, you are going to have a better result than if you try to force a square peg in a round hole and say, nope, you know what? Like we're not getting rid of this open plan space where everybody's crammed in. People were not excited about that before. They are certainly not going to be excited about that after this crisis. So then, so when we talk about these sorts of changes, because this is scaring a lot of people, making some people super excited. Like this is some people's silver lining and some people's, you know, death of an industry. It, It spans the gamut of that spectrum of, oh my gosh, 
the sky is falling to this is the greatest thing ever. So, but talk about how, so, so the, the general feel on that is that maybe people need less office space because people are going to be working remotely and all that kind of thing. And as a structural change, you're saying though, that when the cycle of the economy hits this upswing, you think that, that it, it, am I saying this correctly? If I say that even if the structural uh, uh, implications are pushing down the need for total office space. The fact that the whole economy cycle is starting to burn over capacity and hotter and hotter, and the economy is growing a lot, that that upward swing of the cycle will drive a larger demand for office space than the structural shift pushing it down. Right. And to be fair, I don't even know if the structural change is going to push it down, right? Because there's yeah. the two things that I, I, I say about this. One is a little bit of a joke and one is a little more serious. The joke part of it is if you if you survey people, most people will say the median response is they want to be in an office about three days per week. Yeah. And then you ask them and you say, which days? And they all say Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Yes. And you're like, well, you can't sublease your space on Mondays and Fridays. And so we have to think about how we're going to manage that. But then the other part of it is, uh, that is the serious part we were just talking about. If there is de-densification, which I think to an extent will occur, that's going to push back against any any yeah. sort of contraction that you might see in the space. So that's why I say that part of it, I think is still a little bit ambiguous. But even in an environment where let's just say for argument's sake that it did reduce the demand for space, there is still a cyclical component to this. And there is good empirical data over the last four to five decades that shows that demand for office space does rise and fall with the, the ebb and flow of the economy. And unless you think that there's some reason why the economy won't continue to expand, why, why labor won't continue to expand, the absolute number of jobs, especially office-using jobs, won't continue to increase. You don't think that population is going to continue to grow. Unless you think that the long-term trend in the economy is all of a sudden broken, which I don't, I don't see any reason why, why that's the case. There's nothing in the data that would ever lead me to think that. Then as the economy expands, as hiring increases, as there are more people that, that need, just need to work, right? As the population expands, more people are going to be going to work. Then we need to think about how do you put those people into spaces? Because that's where the growth in the economy is predominantly coming from, at least the ones that drive the economy. It's coming yeah. from people who are innovating in office spaces, whether those are technology workers, whether those are people who are on the front line of financial services innovation, um, maybe really riveting economists who are saying really awesome things on podcasts, <laughs> yeah, whatever the case <laughs> happens to be. And those people, are they want to be in an office. They want to be in an office environment that's conducive to the things that they want to accomplish there. If there are more of them, and I, I genuinely believe that there are going to be more of them, they're going to need space. And yeah. so I see that as a good demand driver over the medium to long run. Again, unless you think something totally unexpected uh, and so out of character happens to those things. I, You're I, still I, feeling good about the office market over yeah, the I medium term. Think, yeah, I still think there is that cyclical demand there. And I'm not wholly sure that the structural changes are actually going to reduce the demand for space. They might, I, I'm not they saying might. they won't. Yeah, I'm just saying that it's that is still ambiguous as to what how some of those competing factors are going to play out. And I think it's important to say to note that's not the only factor that will affect 
the larger office market. The only factor that will affect the, there's not one factor that will affect that larger office market. And I think that's a really key takeaway. And we're going to, I'm going to wrap this up because I want to end on this sort of, and be really clear about this higher note, right? (laughs) That there is a period of opportunity now in 2021, early 22, by the time we get to like that early to mid 22, I, from what we've been talking about, you're going to miss your opportunity as a, as an office using space user of space. And that 2021 is a pretty big opportunity. If you look at it from a tenant perspective, before the economy starts upcycling and the economy starts burning really hot, we have an opportunity now and we should, we should probably grab it. Yeah, that is a point that I have been impressing upon clients when I talk to them, that I get that this next six months is going to be uncertain. I get that maybe you're not willing to make a decision right now, but at a minimum, think about what you are going to do on the other side of this. It's why I present scenarios when I'm talking to clients, because at least plan for those worlds, plan for the upside, plan for the downside, plan for the base case, have a plan in place. And that way, when we get to the other side of this and we have a little more transparency as we start to get past this, you already have made a plan. You can make a decision. If you sit around and you don't, because I know uncertainty can be a paralyzing force. I'm not discounting that. But if you wait too long to delay making a decision, at a minimum, you will miss the best opportunity. Someone who is going to be in the vanguard of this, on the on the leading edge, who's who's I don't want to say be not afraid, but but they're going to be doing the homework now. They will make a decision. They will be able to capitalize on whatever it happens to be: the best rents, the best TI package, the best space in your market or submarket, whatever the, the case happens to be. Yeah, yeah. And those are the ones who are doing the homework now because Mm -hmm. that will enable them to make a decision sooner. If people just see this as there's too much uncertainty, I'm going to put off a decision for a year. I'm not saying you missed the boat completely, but I'm saying you might miss some really compelling Mm -hmm. opportunities if you're not willing to at least at a minimum start thinking about this now. Because like I said, the bottom in 22 feels about right to me. You don't want to be, you don't want to start making about those important decisions at that juncture. You want to be thinking about those important decisions before you get to that juncture. Yeah. And Ryan, I want to be really aware of time. He has um, has some, some kiddos he's got to pick up. So we want to make sure we're not running over. So Ryan, I really appreciate you joining me today. And on this sort of, I consider it a high note. I think there's a huge amount of opportunity and this has been hard, but you know, challenges result in big opportunities for, for some companies when they can, when they can really go for it. So I really appreciate you joining us today. I will link to a couple of different articles and we actually have um, a really great PowerPoint presentation that, um, that Ryan has given a couple of different times that I've seen. And we'll link to that in the show notes also. Um, where can people find you, Ryan? Is is like LinkedIn the best place to find yeah, you? Yeah, I'd say LinkedIn is the easiest place. I'm I'm really not hard to track down for better yeah. or worse, but LinkedIn is is definitely the easiest place to find me. And I would say like check out Ryan's products, like that he his research products and all of the papers and white papers and articles he puts out. I learn a lot and and feel much more able to face the um the uncertainty that's, that we are currently <laughs> in the middle of when I thought when I educate myself with uh with Ryan's Ryan's uh thoughtful f- thoughtful article. So I really appreciate you joining us today, Ryan, and we will catch up with you soon. No, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Take care. 
Ryan, thank you so much for joining us here on the fly through. I know that my conversations with Ryan, I always walk away knowing a lot more and feeling um, at least positive right now about where the economy is going and the opportunity for tenants out in the market. Give me a shout on LinkedIn. Give us a like on the old podcast review. And thank you for joining us as always. Have a lovely week.